Today's scripture is from Romans 12, 14 through 21. Hear now as God speaks through his word. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, as we sit under your word, as we seek to submit ourselves to it, become more like Jesus. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, teach us where we fall short, call us to Christ's likeness. Pray for all of us sinners as we pursue this calling. Pray for me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. These verses contain some of the hardest commands in the Bible. Not hard because they're like strange or because they're hard to understand or something. Just hard because of what they're calling us to do. If you were with us last week, you might remember Paul in this section of Romans is discussing all these different aspects of the Christian life, but all kind of caught up under the category of love, of sincere, genuine love. What does it mean to truly love the way Jesus calls us to? It's one thing to say, oh, we should love people, but it's another thing to really dig into what that means in Scripture. Um, And last week, we kind of did that under some broad headings, but this week, I want to do something a little bit different. A lot of times when you preach a sermon, you're tempted to do these fancy things where you come up with three points that that sum up everything in the verses, but when you do that, you can kind of just lose the simple, like, this is the things that these verses say. So this morning, we're just going to walk through these verses and just try to say what they say, and then we're going to take a specific example and apply them to it. And then at the end, we're going to reflect a little bit on how on earth people like us can live into a calling like this one. So let's just start walking through the text. Start in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So Paul is talking about those who persecute us. And that word can just mean like those who do wrong things to you, but it especially carries the connotation of those who do hurtful things to you because of your beliefs and your faith. Um, Take away your rights or hurt us because of what we believe. And something to keep in mind when Paul says this is that Paul, not writing in like, I don't know, like 1950s America, right? So Paul is writing these words when Nero was the emperor in Rome. Nero, the crazy tyrant who burns down part of Rome and then blames it on the Christians, who was the guy who started feeding Christians to lions, 
who used to take them while they were still alive and light them on fire to light his garden parties. That is the world that Paul is in the midst of when he talks about persecution. And what he says to do to those who persecute us is to bless them. And that word bless, the Greek doesn't just mean sort of like say nice things. It's not like, oh, bless you. It means to seek the good and do kindness to those who persecute us. Not just, not even just don't fight back or something. That would be hard enough. But that while they're seeking to destroy us, we are to seek their blessing. And then at the end of the verse, he says, bless and do not curse. Says it again, because that is such a counterintuitive idea to us. If I could give Eric's translation as Paul saying, bless those who persecute you. No, seriously, bless them. It's crazy. Every human impulse we have would buck against that. And Paul knows that. So he says, no, this is what I really mean. I feel worried right up front by that first command in our time and place because I don't know that that's the way that most of us think we're supposed to live as Christians. I hear Christians fret a lot in our country about persecution, about losing our constitutional rights or um, being discriminated against, and I am not here to tell you that that won't happen. Maybe people can be a little alarmist, but that could totally happen. What worries me is that our response is often to kind of beat the war drums and say, oh, they want to try to persecute us? Well, well, just, just let them try. Get ready to go out and do battle and destroy those people who would try to persecute us. And what the Bible says to do to those who would seek to do that is to bless them. We hear that command, and some of us might ask, well, isn't, any, there, there, isn't there any nuance to that? Can't I, you know, protect my rights and things like that? And the answer is yes, but be careful. Um, it is not the case that Paul's command means that there aren't wise and prudent ways that, you know, that you can stand up for yourself or protect your rights. There are. But we need to be really cautious when we say that because I think all of us, I am on the lookout for an escape clause to this command when I ask that question, right? Um, it's true that there are shrewd and careful ways that we can try to safeguard ourselves in the world. But this command is the fundamental posture that scripture takes towards persecution. Paul says it here, that when we're persecuted, we should seek to bless and be kind to those who persecute us. Jesus says the same thing in places like Matthew 5. Peter says the same thing in places like 1 Peter 3 and 4. The Bible's view is that we should not be surprised when people would seek to persecute us for our faith, and that we should seek to bless and do good to them when they do. That's the baseline, right? And so, yes, there's nuance and things to say beyond that, but we need to make sure that we're not moving away from that core commandment. And we can say more about that, but we're going to keep going because this isn't the only hard verse in this text. So verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. When we see someone rejoicing, we should be joyful with them. When we see someone mourning, we should grieve with them. And that sounds kind of obvious when we say it, but it really isn't in our lives. If you're anything like me, what you really feel is, um, is be jealous of those who rejoice and rejoice <laughs> when other people are mourning. Somewhere deep in the dark corners of our hearts, that's often our temptation. Especially because what's so hard about that command is that it doesn't qualify it. 
It doesn't say in regards to your friends, right? It doesn't say in regards to people that you like. It says just as the general principle within which we live in the world, if we see someone rejoicing, we should be glad. Even if we feel like the person doesn't deserve it. Even if we feel like the person is our enemy. Mourn with them when they mourn. Keep going in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. And do not be conceited. First, Paul touches again on something we mentioned last week, that we're called as believers to live in unity and have a special love for each other. And then he focuses on a specific way that should be true, which is that we should associate with people of lowly position, with those people who are least in the eyes of the world, the poor, the unattractive, the downcast. We should associate with those people. And associate doesn't mean just like tolerate. It means Stand arm in arm with. It means be relationally close to those people. Who should we be spending time with in our lives? Who do we want to be seen with? It shouldn't just be the best or the brightest or the people that make us look good. It should be the downcast and the needy. And on both sides of that command, Paul warns against pride. That's the reason he says it's true. And so that means that when we hear that, it's not because we're really great and can condescend, but what he's really saying is that we should associate with the lowly because it is only our pride that makes us think that we are better than they are. The truth we and they are the same. And again, we could dig down into that, but let's keep going. In verse 17, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. So if some people do evil things to you, Don't do evil back to them. Don't get even. Don't seek revenge. Paul's going to come back to that theme in a minute, so just hold on to that. But then he says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. That doesn't mean you should do everything everyone wants you to do. We're called to be obedient to God, ultimately, and so there are ways that, you know, you have to do things that people might not like. But in as much as while being obedient to God, you can do it. We're called to do what is right and dignified in the eyes of people that we're in relationship with. Even if it's not fair or necessary. And I think in light of those two commands, Paul says in verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So the goal is to live at peace, which means like close relationship and connection. We talked about that before. That's what peace means in the Bible. To live at peace with everyone. Now, there's a caveat there, right? Paul says, if it's possible, and that's recognizing that there are some relationships that we're going to have where it's just not possible, right? Where that person is so set against us, so committed to being an enemy that, you know, I mean, that you're not going to be able to experience that peace. And so Paul's saying, that's all right, that's not your failure. But, he says, as much as it depends on you, do seek that peace. And again, notice, that's not saying as long as it's fair, that's not saying as long as it's convenient, but it's saying do everything that we can to have that connection and peace with everyone. One specific thing, I think that means, um, as I was thinking about that verse this week, often when we're in conflict, our temptation is to wait for the other person to make the first move. Right? Like I think about, like, in marriage, <laughs> you know, with my wife, where we, 
pedophyte. And what we both end up doing, right, in our sin, is to say, well, I'll apologize after they do, right? <laughs> you know, I'm waiting for her to make the first move, and she's waiting for me to make the first move, and we end up at this impasse where neither of us speaks peace. And what Paul is saying is, you make the first move. As much as it depends on you, you speak peace. You apologize for as much as you can, and not only do you do it first, but you, you stick to those guns even if the other person doesn't apologize back. You seek peace. Then in verse 19, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And this gets back to the do not repay evil for evil piece. Don't take revenge. That means a big picture revenge. That means like the, the Count of Monte Cristo plotting the destruction and downfall of your enemies with your whole life. And that means all the little revenges that we take in our life, right? The guy who, you know, who's speeding and annoys you in traffic and trying to pull ahead and so you just start to speed up so that they can't merge back in, right? The big and the little kind of revenge we take. We're not to seek. And then Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord tells us to leave room for God's wrath. And we might wonder about that last part, um, if that sounds strange to us. Hold on to that. We're going to come back to that at the end. Then Paul goes on in verse 20 to make it even clearer. He says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And so it's not just don't get revenge, right? It's not just a refrain from revenge, but sort of like get blessing instead almost on your enemies, right? That if your enemy's hungry, you feed him. And if he's thirsty, you give him a drink. And then there's, again, that strange reference. You will heap burning coals on his head. Some people take that to mean you will make him feel really bad for being a jerk. Um, but I don't think that's what, what Paul's saying there. Burning coals are a common image in the Old Testament prophets of God's wrath. And so in light of what he just said in verse 19, I think this is another way of somehow alluding to God's wrath. And so again, we're going to come back to that later. Then Paul sums up these commands in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And when we read those words, um, when Paul says do not be overcome by evil, he doesn't mean don't let the bad guys win, which I think is how some of us might read it. What he means is don't give in to evil yourself. Don't give in to the urge to do evil in return. And then he gives this striking image. He says, instead, we will overcome evil with good, that it is through love and kindness and self-sacrifice and blessing and prayer that those are the weapons with which we fight against evil. We're called to battle evil with, with good and love. So those are the commands in the text. Now, some of those are hard commands. And as I sat with them, though, I felt like to really feel the weight of them before we talk about how we do them, we needed to maybe just, I, I felt like we needed to make it concrete. And as I sat, kept sitting with this text um, this week, I kept coming back to this one issue in our world that I hear people talk about a lot and that this text kind of applies to. And so before we move on to how do we do this, I thought it would be good to maybe just spend the time trying to apply this to a specific thing. And this is about to be um, a challenging set of topics for us. 
so all of the normal caveats apply. You know, visit with me if you, if you disagree, whatever, I'm happy to. But let's talk about our relationship as Christians to violence, to using violence against offense and opposing evil and whatever. Um, in a world where we hear about so much violence, I feel like it's easy for us to wrestle with that. Mass shootings and crimes, and in a world that is in love with violence. I mean, I have, over the course of my life, seen literally thousands of people killed on the television and in movies. How do we think about all of that? So a couple of observations about this text and that issue. First, two things to be clear about up front before we say how the text is God. One is that when we're talking about that issue, we're, talking, we're not talking about the state using violence. People often kind of conflate those things. Um, in these verses, though, we're told not to seek vengeance because vengeance is the Lord's. And then in Romans 13, the very next chapter, when Paul talks about the government and the state, he describes it as God's avenger who has this right to wield the sword. Now, the state can abuse that right, just like, you know, anything, and it can use it in a way that is evil. But God does give the state the right to use violence, to protect its citizens, to, you know, to protect them from criminals and things like that. And, and because of that, too, for Christians who are agents of the state, right, within that area, like, they're, you know, they're clearly permitted to use violence if they're a soldier or a police officer or something like that. So we're not talking about that. And we're also not going to directly talk about this issue of whether we can use violence to protect other people. Um, I think this is where we all kind of first run when we think about violence in our world. Like, you know, someone is out shooting people on the street, you know, can I, like, use violence to stop them? And the biblical answer to that is, Probably, I think. See, I want to just say yes even to that um, because that's where my instincts go. And there's a, a good biblical argument you can make from it that, um, that headship and authority involves protecting people and valuing life. It involves making choices of you know, valuing many lives over a few. Um, that's the, that's, that's, I like that argument and personally hold it, but even that's actually kind of hard to establish biblically. Um, I should say... In saying that, um, in that and in what follows, right, there are all kinds of nonviolent things we're also not talking about. I mean, if you were in that situation, of course you could restrain the guy. Of course you could call the police. Of course you could evacuate everybody and stand and protect them. Um, and I think in those situations where you're defending others, that Christians would be permitted to use violence. But I'm just acknowledging that even that isn't as airtight a case in Scripture as I would like it to be. But those are also the extreme situations. And most of what confronts us in this world is not those kinds of things. And so here's the harder reality, which is that the Bible does, in this passage and a number of others, seem to exclude Christians from using violence in any other situation, including things like defending our rights, defending our property, and even including things like defending our own lives. And again, look, I said that, and, like, I am a rural, like, red state Midwestern dude, right? <laughs> like, that is not, I mean, I think guns are cool, and I've shot things with them, and I hear Willie Nelson sing about frontier justice, and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, beer for my horses, you know? Like, this is not the place that my heart emotionally lives. But that idea that we ought not use violence in defense of our rights or ourselves 
a pretty consistent testimony of Scripture. A few examples. In Jesus, in Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And that word for resist, like, is often used to violently or forcibly resist. Do not resist the one who is evil. Here's how Jesus pictures his kingdom. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. When Peter pulls out a sword to try to defend Jesus, he tells Peter, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And those passages are both about Jesus' crucifixion, yes, which some people try to mean to say, well, that's kind of a special case, and that doesn't have any broader applications. But look, one, the Bible isn't in the habit of putting verses and, you know, and stories in them because they don't apply to us. And two, Jesus frames both of those cases in terms of general principles. My kingdom is not of this world. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Those aren't just about his crucifixion. Those are general principles about the world. Think about the church throughout the New Testament. They are constantly being persecuted and thrown in jail and killed. And never once do any of them violently resist that happening. Um, And yeah, if you're really into this topic, I'll note there is one verse in Luke 22 where Jesus warns the disciples that this coming age is going to be an evil one, and he says maybe this is the age where you should, like, sell your cloak and buy a sword. But that verse is not about how we should, like, lock and load as we go out and carry the gospel, all right? That's the one verse people usually use in counterpoint. In fact, the disciples hear Jesus say that, and they're like, well, we have two swords, and Jesus is like, that's enough, <laughs> right? Like, clearly, the, anyway. Because of all that, the testimony of Scripture is pretty clear that if someone would seek to rob us or hurt us, do not resist the evil one. If they would seek to do us harm, we should seek to overcome evil by doing good. If they would kill us, we should feed and bless them. And as much as my gut wants that to be otherwise, none of that with shooting them in the head, right? So like I said, we tend to look for nuance as a way to escape hard reality on these commands. And that's why I feel like we need to just wrestle with an example like that to feel the weight of it. Um, Because scripture would tell us that even in those kinds of hard, extreme cases, we're not to resist the evil one, we're not to repay evil for evil, we're to seek to overcome evil with good. And I use that as an example because it's stark. But that also applies to all the other little things, right? The, like, little violences in our lives, not just those sorts of extreme situations. If that's the calling in the bar for Christian obedience, then when a coworker is being a pain or a person cuts in front of you in the shopping line, right, <laughs> obviously our calling to love applies in those cases, too. So all of that saying is a a hard command. How do we do that? How in the world do we live into that kind of heart in this world that is full of evil? And I think there are three ways to answer that. Three things that we need to think about as we think about our calling. That love is supreme in scripture, that Christ has suffered, and that God is sovereign. First of all, love is supreme. And I mean by that, it is Jesus being of ultimate 
scripture views our calling to love as so important and valuable that even to lose our own lives in its pursuit would be worth it. That's what I think Paul's getting at in verse 21 here, when he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Like we said, do not be overcome by evil doesn't mean don't let the evil guys win. It means don't let evil win in you. Don't cling to evil yourself just because other people are doing it. I mean, the whole world is a mess in a sense because that's not what we do, right? Like, because one person does evil to another person, and then that person says, oh, yeah, and does evil back. And then the first person says, oh, yeah, and, you know, and does evil back to them. Like, every family feud and every, every community that's broken and every war in the world happens because, right, we're repaying evil for evil. Scripture's position is that self-giving love is the only way to live as God's people in this world. And the only way to break that cycle. Evil is going to happen question is, will we let evil win by responding in kind? Put another way, the Bible challenges us to think about our priorities. I think when we feel a tension between our call to love and the reality of loss, whether it's property or honor or comfort or even of life, we tend to sacrifice for love, right? When those things are put alongside each other, we say, I mean, you know, love is great, but this is better. Scripture doesn't view it that way. It would challenge those priorities very starkly. Here's how Jesus talks about sin and righteousness in Matthew 5. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And that is very extreme language. And of course, there's something figurative there, right? I mean, if, 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 if we all literally followed that, there would be no Christians with hands and eyes. But, um, but it's meant to demonstrate a point, which Jesus is saying that when it comes to righteousness, right, that is worth more even than this sort of harm. And since Jesus sums up that call to righteousness as love, that means that no price is too high to pay in that calling of love. Our attitude is often that love is great, that there are more important things. Scripture's attitude, along with David in the Psalms, is because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. David wrote those words out in the desert when he had lost everything because he was committed to seeking to follow God's commands on his own. So that's the first part of the answer. How do we do this? We need to have our priorities straight. We need to be willing to say, God's call on my life is worth my even though it costs me these things. So we should love, make love our supreme priority. But that doesn't make it easier. <laughs> that's still hard. And that's where we need two other truths. The first one is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. One of the strange things about Paul's discussion in our modern ears is the way that he, he roots this call to love in the wrath of God. That's what we mentioned in verses 19 and 20. You read verse 19 again. He says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Paul does not say, Don't take revenge because God doesn't take revenge. He says, Don't take revenge because God will ultimately bring vengeance. Go to verse 20. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
be thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, he will heap burning coals on his head. And like we said, that image of burning coals is probably also an image of God's wrath. So Paul seems to be saying, be kind to your enemies and serve them because of God's wrath. And that is weird to us, isn't it? Like that, that seems confusing to us. But here's why I think Paul's saying that. And I think this is so important because we have this deep question when we think about the kind of love that we've just been called to. At least I do. And my question is, if I do this, then who's looking out for me? Right? Who's taking care of me? And what Paul does not say is, don't worry about it, everything will be fine. But what he does say is that God is a God of justice who is in control of the world, who is looking out for us. God is sovereign. He's in control. And that means that if God says something like vengeance belongs to him, that we ought not overstep those bounds, that we ought to respect the fact that he has the right to claim it, that also comes with a promise is that God will bring justice. He'll bring justice, perhaps, in this life, in this age, and he will certainly bring it in the age to come. This last week, I was reading um, the really powerful testimony of um, Rachel Denholander, who is one of the victims of a, some of you might have seen this circulating on the internet, but um, who is the Olympic doctor who abused all of these girls. And, um, one of the really striking things to me was that Rachel Denholander really got this too, because she was able to say um, that she extends forgiveness to him, but not in a kind of trite way. Rather, within her testimony, basically what she says is that here is what I know. Like, I will extend you forgiveness, meaning I will not seek to destroy you, I will not seek to grow bitter or hate you, because I trust that justice is coming it is not mine to give, ultimately, but that God will bring it. Um, and that set her free from her need to try to take it into her own hands. Trusting in God's vengeance, <laughs> but in God's justice and sovereignty. He's in control, and he will ultimately bring that justice, even though it's not here right now. But that actually will teach us a clear lesson. So God's sovereignty helps us in a sense to love. And the other thing that helps us that Christ has suffered. Jesus Christ has suffered. When we read through these verses, right, they're a set of commands, and we read them that way. But I had this moment as I was sitting with this text where I had this realization that, you know what, like, these verses are also a description of Jesus. Did you notice that at all while we were reading? Bless those who persecute you. I mean, Jesus calls his disciples to do this same thing, and then he does it. He dies to save these people who are killing him. He says, Father, forgive them as they crucify him and bleeds so that they might be saved. Jesus rejoices with the glad and mourns with the suffering. He associates with people of lowly position, hanging out with sinners and outcasts and the poor and the sick. He didn't repay evil for evil. He let himself be led away to be crucified, even though, as he tells Peter, call down the armies of heaven and destroy the people trying to arrest him. He sought peace. He came to bring peace. True, eternal peace. Jesus was unjustly accused, but he didn't fight back, and he cared for and fed and ministered to the very people who would ultimately kill him. The cross is the ultimate symbol 
of overcoming evil with good. The world expects salvation by destroying the evil in the world, and Jesus brings salvation by suffering and dying for their salvation. And Jesus tells us, take up your cross and follow me. What do we think that means? In a real sense, it means that he's calling us to walk the path that he has already set. The more we recognize Jesus' suffering, the more it helps us to be willing to suffer. It gives us peace that God isn't calling us to do something that he hasn't himself done. That when we seek to live this way, we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And it gives us hope. It stands as a marker that salvation comes into the world through self-sacrificing love. Life springs up in the world as we die to ourselves, not as we defend ourselves. In Jesus, we see that power of good at work overcoming the power of evil. As we close, let me try to just give you a picture of what that kind of love looks like in our world. Some of you might know the story of Jim Elliott. He was a missionary in the 1950s who, along with four other men, were seeking to share the gospel with some remote tribes in Ecuador. Here's a picture of a couple of the missionaries, and Jim's the guy on the right. Um, and um, Jim's mission was controversial, actually, back in the United States for several reasons, but mainly because a number of the tribes that he and these men had gone to, especially this tribe called the Akas, were known to be extremely violent. Friends and mission agencies encouraged them to reconsider going to these tribes because they were worried about their safety or that if they were going to go that they should hire mercenaries, right, and arm up and, and go kind of in that way. And um, nobody would have blamed them if they did that, I don't think. Jim had a wife and a young daughter when he went to Ecuador. Several of the others did as well. And you could dress those calls to him up as family responsibility and wisdom, but Jim Elliot insisted that that was not the case. Um, he reflected on these commands in scripture, and then writing in his journal, this was how he declared what he thought. He said, um, he quoted Jesus' statement that he who would keep his life will lose it, but that he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And Jim Elliot wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that cannot lose. And so they went to the Akas and made contact with them, and on January 8th of 1956, Jim and those other four men were all brutally murdered by them. And um, here's the thing about Jim Elliot. When his death and the death of those other missionaries was reported in the press, which it was widely, it was as a senseless tragedy, right? Here were these well-intentioned people who just met with this terrible fate, and it just you know, it's a shame that they did this, and it could have been avoided. And there certainly was tragedy in their death. Um, if they had avoided that danger, or if they had, you know, armed up and come ready, you know, just to take it out, um, Jim Elliot may well have lived a long life and a happy life and had many children. But we know what would not have happened was that the Aka Indians and the other tribes around them would not have all become Christians, which they did several years, largely as the fallout of the, the love and the way that those men faced that death. Um, and they saw those men's commitment to love. They saw the 
commitment of their wives. And he talked about praising two of their wives, including Jim's wife, Elizabeth, responded to this by moving to live with the Akas and share Jesus with them. The whole region of Ecuador around there heard the good news, and many of them became Christians because, in truth, God is good and in control, and love is stronger than death, and good does triumph over evil. Because those five men were not overcome by evil, but helped to overcome evil with good. And our stories won't be that dramatic. That is the force that is at work in your life and my life. That as we seek to bless those who persecute us, and as we seek to give ourselves in love to the lowly and to our enemies and to those that would seek to hurt us, we are joining in that cause. We're giving what we cannot keep to gain. teach us to love. It is hard. It is hard even in all the little ways that I encountered in my life. Um, it seems even harder when I think about those big ways, but you are at work through us and in the world. You've shown us love in Jesus Christ and called us to follow in his footsteps. I pray that you would aid us as we seek to follow. I pray these things in his name.